everyone. We're so excited that you could join us for today's episode of Remedial Studies. I am happy to be hosting here with Rachel. Uh, If you don't know by now, my name is Hannah, and today we're really, really, really excited to talk about What We Do in the Shadows, which was directed by Taika Waititi, Remedial Studies alum, Mm -hmm. and Jermaine Clement, uh, because we really love vampires, and we love vampire tropes. Yes, um, and this movie has so many of both of those things. What We Do in the Shadows is a mockumentary film about three three to five five vampires (laughs) that live in Wellington, New Zealand in the early 2010s. And it's as ridiculous as that premise sounds. It really is. There's the three main vampires that we follow throughout the whole film who are Vladislav who is very blatantly supposed to be Dracula. His name is Vlad. Like, come on. Vlad the poker. The poker, not Vlad the impaler. There is a difference. And <laughs> um, there's Viago, who is very much the Lestat, and Rice, foppish vampire. Um, and then there's Deacon, who's like the 80s, when vampires became kind of punk, like in the style of Kiefer Sutherland and the Lost Boys. He's over, like, 120 years old, but they call him, like, the young rebel of their friend group. Um, And then there's Peter, who lives in their basement and is, like, 800 years old. And there's several uh, other vampires that they meet throughout the Wellington area. The most prevalent one, though, is Nick, who originally comes to the house as, like, a snack and becomes a vampire. But he's, like, what do you think? Probably, like, mid-20s? Yeah, he's our age. Yeah, he's probably our age. So he's very much of the vampires have now become more romantic in the lowercase r sense. Do you feel like that that is accurate? Yeah. Uh, he uh, runs around shouting, Twilight. And you're like, I'm Twilight. Time. I'm Twilight. Oh, man. And then he, like, <laughs> tries to pick a fight with that guy in what essentially is a CVS. Whatever yes. the New Zealand version of a CVS is. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and then he, like, makes his face all terrifying. Yeah. The guy is just, like... And then he gets into a bat fight with Deacon. Yeah, he gets it's into a, a bat time. fight with Deacon. It's a lot. And then, of course, there's Stu, who I feel <laughs> is the unsung heart and soul of the film because everybody loves Stu. Um, but he's, like, Nick's friend who's, like, a software analyst. And he ends up, like, hooking their house up with Wi-Fi. And, <laughs> like, they take him to this big ball that they that they lead up to and all this other stuff. Is it the Midnight Masquerade? Yeah, it, it's... Or... Oh, it's something masquerade. It's, like, the Bloody Masquerade or the Midnight Masquerade. The Unholy Masquerade. masquerade something. It's something like that. Anyway. But it, what's funny about that, I thought, was that it takes place in, like, a community center at the end of the day. <laughs> Um, which leads us into a big thing that this movie kind of does, and I think we're both really big fans of. It subverts a lot of very classical vampire tropes, not necessarily by changing them, but by bringing them to their logical conclusion in the modern era. Yes, my favorite way to subvert tropes. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> so much of it is like, they act like how we th- we think vampires should act in literature, but they are just so out of place and it's so patently 
ridiculous when you mm-hmm. put them up against the simple common sense folk that they're surrounded by. Yes. And it's a very particular kind of comedy that I I very much enjoyed. I know you said you very much enjoyed this movie as well, Hannah. You watched it for the first time leading up to this show, right? I did. I sat on my couch on Sunday evening and I I drank a Gatorade because I wasn't <laughs> feeling good and I, I watched this movie and you it made me feel better. I did. I did. I like a five hour head cold and then it went away. I don't know. It was real <laughs> weird. <laughs> This movie cured my head cold. That's the best way to think about it. The first time I saw this movie was when I when it came out, and I swear this is relevant, it was when it came out, I believe it was in 2014 or 15, I saw it with two of our good friends at um, a smaller, more independent theater by the place where I was living at the time, and it was a full, tiny little full theater and everyone was just so into it and they just totally bought into it. Like, you bought into the premise. Bought into how silly it was. And I think this is reminiscent of a lot of Taika Waititi's work in particular. I remember seeing The Flight of the Concords, which which is what Jermaine Clement is most known for. And I saw a lot of this too. This, like, earnestness in comedy where it's very tongue-in-cheek and it's very just ridiculous. But it's done with such gusto that you yeah. just completely buy into it. I do love Flight of the Concords. I do. Yeah, I really liked it. And there were a couple of times. So as everybody knows by now, I'm not real big into the horror genre. But there are a couple of times where this movie actually did, even though it's mostly funny, where it did sneak up on me a little bit. Mm. There were two moments. And I think it's very telling which two moments they are because it's when... Peter gets Nick, essentially, because Nick almost gets out of the house without getting eaten. And then Peter grabs him, and you think Peter has eaten Nick, but Nick shows up a couple of days later and is like, I'm a vampire. I can fly now. I don't use the front door. (laughs) That's for mortals. (sighs) I just kept wanting him to talk in a valley girl voice. I don't know why. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Uh, and then the other moment where I was a little bit afeard was when, and this is, you know we do spoilers, but at the end, Stu is mauled by werewolves. Yeah, a pack of werewolves, where he's essentially, like, hunted and disemboweled. Yeah, he, he and the cameraman are go through that and it gets a little bit because there's some like cloverfield shaky cam Mm -hmm. in this you know how they're running on the reality tv and that's another thing that we didn't talk about in pre-show meeting but Uh might be fun to talk about is the reality tv show aspect of it no i think that is fun because i think it lends something to the concept because so much of i think the genre of the mockumentary and the found footage it is it's originally i think intended to put an air of like mystery and oh you're getting a glimpse into something that they don't want you to know and all this other stuff which ties into the title what we do in the shadows but like in this movie, it's it's used so much more for laughs because they talk so often directly to the camera. They do the, like, what I view as the modern soliloquy, which is, like, the big brother talking head 
where they're off in their rooms and they're just giving these interviews and they're waxing poetic, usually posing dramatically. And <laughs> it's it's just a lot, but it's it lends this almost like confessional air to it that adds into the almost satire part of it where you see these guys, they're so self-involved. They're so self-involved and they're so caught up in what they believe their lives to be that it really just kind of makes those moments. The one I always think of is the walk through those two cops do. <laughs> when Peter is killed, Viago, uh, not Viago, excuse me, Deacon and Nick and Vladislav kind of get into this big fight and they're like screeching and they're flying around the house and they're trying to kill each other. Well, Deacon's trying to kill Nick, Vladislav's trying to stop him, like all this <laughs> other all this other stuff. So someone files a noise complaint. And the police come, and they're like, hey, guys, you know you can't do that. Viago hypnotizes them, but is like, I'm a really bad hypnotizer, so it could wear off at any second. And <laughs> they end up going through their whole house, and they're like, why don't you have any smoke detectors? Like, why don't you, why do you have, like, this highly flammable solvent by your fuse box? Like, why do you have all this other crap? And at the end of it, Deacon's like, we should just kill them. And Vladislav, and one, of, and one of my favorite throwaway lines, is like, well, let's see what other safety tips they have. <laughs> and then we'll talk about it. But I think what a lot of that does is it is going back to that taking something old-fashioned that we sort of are at a comfortable enough distance to idolize. And bringing it to the very unsexy, very <laughs> low-rent modern conclusion, which is these guys don't know what the fuck they're doing at any given time. Yeah, I do kind of wonder if self-involvement is a consequence of immortality because the only constant becomes yourself. Holy shit. <laughs> I've never thought about that before, but that's that's a very good point. I think there's a certain amount of ego required to be a vampire. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and, th and, that's, and that's something that runs through a lot of different characters in the movie that are some of them are only visible for a few minutes. Some of them are only mentioned. But there's like Jackie, who's Deacon's familiar, who's only doing it because she wants to be a vampire. And then when she, and then when she becomes a vampire, she makes her husband her, her familiar. Which... So, that he, so that he has to do everything she says and that she's his master, which is some bullshit, but I'm sure we'll get into that. And then there's Viago's old servant who's mentioned in the very beginning of the film and then doesn't come back for like an hour until Stu teaches him how to set up Skype and where he was doing Viago's work because he wanted to be a vampire. And he's like, obviously, many, many, many years have passed since they spoke. I think it's like 40 or some years, 40, 50 some years. And this guy is like, you know, I've waited my whole life. I'm old now. I have nothing left. You prom like you promised me this and you promised me this. Essentially saying that he has wasted his entire life waiting to get eternal life. <laughs> Which Viago promptly ends that Skype phone yeah. call. Yeah, Viago promptly ends the Skype phone call, which I thought was pretty funny. But yeah, I, I think there is something in that whole, you really have to want it. And 
what is the consequence of wanting something like that? Of wanting to, in essence, live with yourself forever. <laughs> because that's something that's also touched on later when Stu dies. Spoiler alert, he turns into a werewolf all was well. I did not have to murder Jermaine Clement and Taiko Watiti because they took Stu from me. <laughs> but it was... Uh, Nick was obviously very, very upset that his friend had died. And Deacon is trying to comfort him. And he essentially tells him, like, I think I have the exact quote somewhere. But he's like, you know, this is what happens when you're a vampire. You have to watch everyone die. I guess that that whole moment, and it's one of the only real emotional moments of the film that aren't, that isn't just played for laughs. There are definite jokes in it. But a big part of that moment is him being like, you know, this is like a normal thing. Like, you can't take everyone with you. And there's another line in that little mini speech that really, like, I'd felt my chest tighten when I heard it. And it was, um, he's talking about how many ways you can watch somebody die. And it's like, you know, sometimes it's brutal. Like, they fall on a giant spike. Sometimes you, like, make a mask out of crackers and get attacked by ducks. <laughs> But sometimes, sometimes people die of old age, but even old age is brutal. And not to get too hashtag real, like I have <laughs> older grandparents there in their 80s who are kind of going through that. And like, it's, it's kind of true of how at some point when, when you start like the natural aging process, you naturally, you start kind of breaking down of having to watch somebody go through that is bad enough when it's somebody you know, the thought of having to do that with everyone you will ever know forever. Yes. <laughs> is very sobering. Mm-hmm. And I, again, I wonder if that ties into their total frivolousness and their their attitudes towards, I don't know, existing in this world. And how they are very silly because they go out on like Friday nights to downtown Wellington mm -hmm. uh, and they can't get into any of the clubs because all the bouncers know that they're vampires and won't let them in. Yeah, they won't invite them in. So they end up going to like the one vampire club in town. <laughs> Mm -hmm. which is awful <laughs> it's awful it's terrible it's so lame like i can't i can't even <laughs> think about it which of course it would be yeah no it would like be. that's real it would be like you, you get a bunch of people from like 100 plus years old all in a building together all from different time periods all have different ideas of what's cool all of them are just going to be super lame Yes. <laughs> like, that's just a thing. And I like that someone finally embraced that. Yeah. Because it is really funny. Yeah. And, like, I remember Nick shows up to go out in, like, a newer military jacket style thing. And, like, Deacon mm -hmm. is wearing probably an actual military jacket. Yeah, one of his many uniforms that he had, probably. And Deacon is like, Nick is wearing my my outfit like we can't we can't, we can't do this can't he needs together. to change like he needs one of to us get is gonna have style. to go home yeah yeah that's a that is a real thing that happens and it he ends up that's part of why they get in the bat fight i feel like 
I feel like, yeah, because Deacon's like, you're trying, <laughs> Deacon thinks he's trying to, like, wreck his style. Yeah. Oh, gosh. And in addition to running around telling people that he's a vampire, Nick also has these awful, this awful vampire fang necklace that yes. he wears. That I'm just like, Nick, really? Buddy, you're going to need to bring it down. <laughs> that's not in good taste i'm sorry it's not it's really not a thing that i wanted to talk about because we see the the four main vampires the four generations of vampires is a the generational process of generating and creating an identity because i think all four of them have very different ideas of what it is to be a vampire oh for sure and it re- totally reflects the pop culture interpretation of what what we have thought a vampire should and shouldn't be. Right. I'm doing my best to revisit some quote-unquote classic literature that I passed <laughs> up on in high school. Because I've, I've had good success with like books that I've done that with. Where I'm like, oh, I'm glad I didn't read this in high school. It would have been too early. Yeah. Not necessarily because I wouldn't have got it. It just, sometimes it's not the right time. It's, it's just not. It's not the right time. Like, will it ever be the right time for me and Catcher in the Rye? I don't know. I don't know, but I want to I give it, I want to give it a try. I feel like I owe it to give it a try. But what what I have been trying to do is I've been trying to visit revisit a lot of, like, horror fiction because that's changed a lot in the past 200 years. Yes. <laughs> Dracula, of course, being the mainstay. But I just got another book that I'm very excited to read. That is horror in a weirdly existential religious way. It's by, uh, I'm going to butcher this poor man's name, Mikhail Bolkakov. And it is The Master and Margarita. Oh. And it's about the devil coming to Stalinist and... <laughs> officially atheist moscow oh and the story of him finding these two characters i don't know a whole lot about it because people are i don't want spoilers we have one friend she can like read as many spoilers as you want she can read the last page of anything and she will have the exact amount of enjoyment no matter what i'm just not one of those people (laughs) i want to be surprised but so like that particular style of horror where it's almost like psycholog the, the psychological part of it i think started with a lot of gothic and a lot of stuff that like bram bram stoker dabbled in and that kind of area but it's it's so much of what vampires and what horror fiction does comes out of what the fear is in the moment culturally does that yeah. make sense no i think that's true of a lot of Horror. And I think Guillermo del Toro talks about that a little bit, like the moment shaping the monster. Yes, so yes, to speak. Exactly. Thank you, Daddy Guillermo. You understand me. <laughs> so, and this is a good example. And I have read every single Twilight book. I've seen every single movie. Don't fucking at me. Okay. <laughs> like, let 17 year old Rachel rest, please. Let 25 year old Rachel rest. Anyway. Yeah, we we own our Twilight phases. Thanks. Yeah. That was a thing that happened. And I think I have, I'm mutuals with this person on Tumblr. Her name's Sarah. I do not believe she listens to this show. But she <laughs> had a great point about 
Even if you had a phase where you hated Twilight, it was still a Twilight phase. <laughs> yes. But anyway, so you look at something like Dracula or something like um, Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla, which was kind of a precursor to that. The vampires being, as we would understand it today, sexy. Yes. <laughs> and you look at that kind of depiction of what the Victorian Edwardian sexiness in monstrosity is and you take that and you look at something like twilight which was obviously written for a different audience first and foremost it's ya literature i do not know anyone who would categorize dracula as ya literature (laughs) if you look at like stephanie myers i i think you could make a case for or against this being a part of the book most likely for like she was brought up in like the Mormon church and a lot of the like kind of Christian undertones that run through a lot of the style of vampires and how a lot of Bella's actions are reflected in the book. I could talk for hours, but their brand of sexy, if you will, is very, very different because I think what we view as dangerous has changed, but the underlying sexual anxiety hasn't (laughs) well i mean what about something like true blood which i think is like pretty Mm -hmm. sexy that's why people like that it's on hbo it's on hbo it's very sexy (laughs) yeah there's a whole thing i watched i think the first three seasons of true blood i liked it very much i probably watched it way too young i don't know what my mom was doing i haven't seen it it's sexy vampires in the south so there you go but yeah, a lot of that has to do with this almost like sexuality and vampires is so inseparable for us anymore. And I think it's almost always been like that in the modern conception of vampires. I think it's it has been because I remember talking about this even in my high school literature classes where it's like the trope is it doesn't even have to be a vampire vampire. It can just be an older man corrupting a younger woman mm-hmm. meets the trope requirement. So the the idea of corruption, of some kind of moral degradation, and then of course the biting and the exchanging mm-hmm. of fluids is always mm-hmm. very... It's not slick. No, it's a very... I mean, the Victorians, like, we like to think of them as, you know, very repressed or whatever, but it was just... They were also, like, freaks. Yeah, they were pretty freaky. (laughs) Pretty (laughs) freaky kids, the Victorians. (laughs) But yeah, like, that's always, that has been a thing since at least, like, the OG Dracula, if not Yeah, and it continues to be a thing in popular culture. Contractual, episode per episode, plug for Dungeons & Dragons. I'm running (laughs) the Curse of Strahd module again. And that whole relationship of the older man corrupting the younger woman is a huge thing in the interaction with Strahd and Arena, who you meet in the beginning, who we're still, they're together. I said, fuck you, Chris Perkins, my city now, a lot in our campaign. (laughs) You did. Um, But that's my life. But yeah, so it's, it is, it's a trope that lives on. Which makes me not question in the traditional sense. It makes me think about why is it so effective? Because we don't really see a whole heck of a lot of it in what we do in the shadows. Right. The The thing they actually do the opposite is Viago, when he 
he moved to New Zealand because he would, decided to run after a girl that he was in love with. But he got, his coffin got shipped uh, the wrong route. And he ended up there uh, like a year and a half later than he intended. And she had met someone and gotten married. And instead of pursuing her and killing the guy be and having it be like the typical messy, possessive vampire behavior that you would expect from, you know, someone like maybe Lestat. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Um, he... <laughs> He He very, yeah, he backs off. He lets her live her life. He says, in a very tender moment, and again, a moment that's not really one of the few moments that's not played for laughs, he says, you know, I looked at her and I saw how happy she was, and in a way, it made me happy. So I left them alone. And I'm just like, my heart cracked a little bit in that moment. Like a single hairline fracture went went down the middle of my heart. But, but at the end of the film, yes, he, he goes to the nursing home where Catherine is staying, her husband having passed and he, they still have the hots for each other and he turns her into a vampire and he makes a, um, he makes a cradle robbing joke. Yeah. At, at, at his own expense. (laughs) Yeah. Because she's 80 and he's like 300 something years old. Yeah. He's like he's like three ninety six or something crazy. Yeah. So, but yeah, and she and she's in her eighties, and he's like, you know, people always talk about the age difference. What is this? What is this young woman doing dating a man four times her age? <laughs> but I don't let it bother me. And it was just, it was cute. The fact that that it ended happily with that moment and like the werewolves, not swearwolves, coming to the house because like Stu is like their bridge into the vampire clan so that they can start to like heal a lot of the petty pissing contest <laughs> differences that they showcase throughout the film and it it's very uplifting at the end which is again not very typical of the vampire narrative yeah that was the other thing the other thing that really got me about how it subverted the vampire narrative is so Stu gets them hooked up to the internet and they ask can we watch a video of the sunrise mm-hmm. and it was that was rough on me that that was a lot that hurt some I didn't things. think about that until you just mentioned <laughs> it and that was a lot yeah and then like Deacon falls asleep once Peter dies and they have to banish dies in quotation marks mm-hmm. and they banish nick and everyone's in a really bad place he like falls asleep in the living room watching videos of the sunrise and he mm-hmm. and it's just it's a rough time yeah and then viago has to come and get him because they they leave the curtains open sometimes at night and <laughs> they didn't close them before he went to sleep so if the sun had risen while he was still in there he would have roasted and he has to take him back to his little closet so he can go take a nap. They're few and far between, but the moments where it is genuine and not played as a, as a joke are really good. But that does not in any way discredit how funny some of the jokes are. Yes. I think my favorite is when... So the whole thing with the Unholy Masquerade is there's a guest of honor every year. Oh. And, throughout the, and throughout the movie, we keep hearing about this this entity 
called the beast capital b that vladislav has like like this this thing is his arch nemesis and it comes out that the guest of honor is her name's like pauline but <laughs> she is the beast and all she is is his ex-girlfriend yeah that's, that's it. it she's a vampire but she's <laughs> she's still like she's his ex that's been the thing the whole time but he like goes on this really weird fender where he doesn't talk to anybody, he doesn't eat, he gets all crusty, and they're, like, trying to get him out of it, and he's like, no, leave me to do my dark bidding on the internet. And then there's a beat, and they're like, what are you bidding on? And it pans <laughs> over, and he's on eBay, <laughs> bidding on a table. Yeah, that's probably the most iconic line of that whole movie. <laughs> it was so iconic. <laughs> because it's so real. Yeah, that's me, though. <laughs> that is me. That is very me. Leave me to do my dark bidding on the internet. I wish I had that on a t-shirt. Someone somewhere has that on a t-shirt. I'm sure. We'll we'll go check out Redbubble immediately following this presentation. <laughs> yes. Did you have anything you wanted to talk about, Hannah? Uh, I kind of wanted to talk about the recent... So my three vampire movies that exist in like a triangle for me right now Mm -hmm. are well there's four i'm a liar so it's a square (laughs) (laughs) so we have we've already talked about twilight we have talked about what we do in the shadows we've talked a little bit about interview with the vampire but we have not talked about Only Lovers Left Alive, which is a yes. super serious movie about modern vampires. It's so serious. I really like it. I haven't I haven't watched it in a long time. I remember, I think, you watched it with our one mutual friend. Yes, we did watch it. I think I like Only Lovers Left Alive because it doesn't really have a lot going on. No, no, it doesn't. It's very aesthetic-y. It's very, like, mythological in a weird way. It's very... Okay, listeners, I have I have a thing against Murakami and the Wind-Up Bird Chronicles. You do. And it's because the guy, spoilers... Sits in the wells. He's yeah. People, these men keep sitting in wells for chapters, chapters (laughs) of wells, endless, endless wells. Uh And only lovers left alive reminds me of that novel. Only instead of sitting in a well, they're sitting in Detroit. What? Instead of sitting in Wells, they're sitting in Detroit. I'm sorry, Detroit, but you know what you did. The Wells and the Detroit are the same. Oh, man, they are, though. Yeah, Only Lovers Left Alive, brief primer, is the story of two (laughs) vampires named Adam and Eve, played by the two people who I would not at all be surprised if they were real-life vampires, Tom Hiddleston and Tilda Swinton. And it's kind of just like this weird chapter in their lives and we don't really know anything about them. And it's not even like, like, they're they're vampires. You know they're vampires, but they don't have like the big monstrous reveal until the very last shot of the movie. And when they're in fucking Morocco and it's like, 
It's a weird movie. I watched it all the way through and I enjoyed myself while I did it, but it's a weird movie. Yeah. And and it is very much the antithesis of this movie. Yes. Where it's very serious and it's very like it's full of ennui. Yes. Yes. Instead of being very silly and frivolous, they just sort of lie around in an emaciated pile with no yeah. clothes on in their house full of decadent hedonist stuff and they are very civilized like adam goes to a hospital every couple of weeks and gets blood from the blood bank yeah but it's a staff change at the hospital that drives the only real like that drives the movie to its conclusion in addition to Eve's vampire sister showing up, yeah. killing someone in their apartment. Which led to the most iconic line in that movie, which was Tom Hiddleston's deadpan delivery of you ki- I think the line was like, you killed Ian. No, you drank <laughs> Ian. That's the line. You drank Ian. And they have to go dump Ian in some industrial waste. Which is all around Detroit, as we Apparently, all know. they just have vats of lye under bridges in Detroit, according to this movie. Michigan, what the fuck are you doing <laughs> up there? <laughs> yeah, so the well is Detroit. Detroit is the well. Don't read Wind Up Bird Chronicles. This movie was okay. It's much shorter than Wind Up Bird Chronicles. It's much shorter, and it, it at least at least it moves forward at some point. Yeah, I mean, eventually Wind Up Bird Chronicles does too, but it takes so long, and you have to go to Siberia, and then there's the zoo massacre, and then it's just like, why do all of these women want to have sex with the main character who was just looking for his cat, and then his wife left him? I don't know. That's, it's a... See, now you're making me want to read this. <laughs> no! I wanna, no, I want to experience it for myself, and then we can have an intelligent roast. I guess. <laughs> I'm, I'm so scared to try any other Murakami books. It's so so weird. scared. I feel, like, I feel like Murakami's one of those guys, like, you either really like him or you don't. I don't know. I I, I mean, I Is feel like... Is he one of those guys that, like, white male intellectuals want to sell to us? Yeah. Like yeah. Bukowski? Yeah. No. Well, actually, that might be a bit unfair to Charles Bukowski, but, like... I refuse to get into Jack Kerouac. No. Like, fuck that guy. I read that for... I did an American literature class, and the theme uh, was road trips, which, of course, is a very American concept because we have a country Mm -hmm. that takes weeks to drive across where that concept wouldn't necessarily work so well in, like, Britain. (laughs) No, where they are an island. Yes. So... Like, you can get to another country in a tunnel in, like, two minutes. It's bizarre to me, but regardless... No, the whole concept of space is really fucked, but anyway. (laughs) Our anxieties about distance aside, on the road was just so annoying to me as a woman. Like, I could not Mm -hmm. take it. Like, there are just these men running around being awful to the women in their lives, doing things that women just can't do, I still can't do. Like, I can't just go, I don't feel like I can just go run around the American countryside like I own the place. No, we would die. 
yeah, hopped up on drugs and yeah. God, I hate throwing around the term privilege because I do think it is a bit overused <laughs> these days. It's it's a legitimate term that has been co opted, which I know sounds really hip- hypocritical coming from me. But anyway, women can't do shit like that. No, and there's no. I wouldn't even be interested if it was a story with a woman in it about that. No. Because the whole concept of it is too male. Yeah. You can't ever put anybody but a dude in that. And I would argue a white dude. Yeah, probably not. Like, that's a very... That's the thing about the Beats that I don't like is that they're very self-involved. Again, they're sort of like the vampires. I'm going to bring it back around. Yes, we're bringing it around town. Only SpongeBob style. Only instead with the beats, it's lots of drugs instead of immortal life, right? Or it it creates the illusion that they are invulnerable and immortal in their writing. This idea, like on the road, I think is so annoying because the main character has no concept of like risk or the self-awareness, or any sort of survival instincts, and he's just Mm -hmm. running around doing whatever. But we find that appealing in vampires. Yes, because I I think, and I think this is what separates the reaction to eternity that you see in Only Lovers Left Alive, which is a lot of very, almost suicidal nihilism, Mm -hmm. certainly on Adam's part. And then you see the way the trio of vampires reacts to it and what we do in the shadows, which is nihilism in a way but it's the well what's gonna happen yeah it's it's, the... it, it's that it's the optimistic take on well nothing matters right it's well we might as well do some sick kick flips on the skateboard and wear crocodile t-shirts yeah pretty much that's a meme on tumblr that image of like and i think that the kind of nihilism is something that we see uh in the millennial sense of humor too a lot and it's part of our sense of humor yeah the difference reminds me a bit ali brosh wrote continues to write i think wrote an amazing webcomic called hyperbole and a half most of it's just kind of silly but some of it she gets like really serious and she, she talks about like she continues to battle with really bad clinical depression but she was like you know at some point if you really lean into the not knowing if you're gonna get to the next day then that not knowing, but if you keep going on anyway, gets to be like hope. (laughs) And that's the kind of thing I think we see in what we do in the shadows that isn't present in a lot of other vampire narratives, where for them, they're on the roller coaster that only goes up. (laughs) Which is, as we've talked about over the course of this episode, is atypical of the vampire narrative, where they're very broody in a way that is, I think, very well represented in Only Lovers Left Alive with Tom Hiddleston's character, where he's very much the broody, self-involved, oh, what a world, full of ennui <laughs> vampire that, uh. I mean, I know, I I love him and I hate him. I love the concept I would be annoyed by the reality, um, <laughs> as in so much fiction I read, but... With him, he's very much just kind of like, okay, I've been here, I've done this, I'm over it, there's nothing left for me here. Whereas, in what we do in the shadows, they're constantly, like, remaking the world for themselves. <laughs> Even though it is from a place of egotist, almost egotistical stupidity, it still is like, I'd rather have that. And I'd rather be like that than to be the kind of person who 
sits in Detroit and does nothing <laughs> because nothing matters. It's like you can do whatever you want because nothing matters. Right. So why are you sitting in a house in Detroit doing nothing? Yes. You could be in downtown Wellington trying to get into terrible clubs and failing and then going into the worst club. <laughs> You could be having pointless fights with your ex in a community center. <laughs> you could be having a pissing contest with the gang of werewolves. So you could be wearing a giant fur coat everywhere. God, there were some looks and a half in this movie. <laughs> I particularly was a fan of Vladislav's outfit for the Unholy Masquerade where it was the big white fur cloak. Yes. And the mask. <laughs> After he, like, cleans himself up, after they give him kind of that tough love pep talk of, like, are you going to let her keep you away from this and all this other stuff, <laughs> which is such a human thing. Yeah. Um, my favorite look was probably Viago in the top half, the, like, 1800s jacket and shirt and then, like, camo pants. Yes. And seeing vampires in 70s clothes, like, the vampires should not exist in the 70s, but they must have if they exist now. What did 70s vampires look like, Rachel? Do we know? Can we talk? I've actually seen several posts about this on Tumblr, but not really. <laughs> because I think the vampires I would most like to see are 90s vampires. With the horrible fashion and the horrible slang and just... Because we always think about vampires. We think about, like, 1850s and up. Yeah. What about mid-century to modern vampires? What about that? Because here's the thing. It's exactly as you said. If they exist now, and they're hundreds of years old, they existed in the era of disco. <laughs> I am going to write a vampire disco novel. It's Can done. please do? I don't know anything about disco. I don't know anything about writing. But <laughs> just do it. That's what I do. <laughs> but if someone can write Kentucky Fried Chicken Erotica, I can write. That's true. You know what? You know what was my turning point as a person who likes to think that they can write? Slender Man porn. <laughs> Why? What? Never mind. I don't want That I... was my turning point where I'm like, fuck it. If that guy can do it, I can do it. <laughs> nothing is real and nothing matters. <laughs> My big takeaway from this movie is how much what we fear and what we try to avoid can also be something that we end up idolizing in our monsters. Like vampires, if, if you think of them in a kind of weird existential way, are an extreme version of death avoidance. Yes. Because I've been thinking a lot about this lately. You will know this because you were at our D&D game on Saturday. I've been thinking <laughs> a lot about art's relationship to death. And if everything we do can be tied back to its relationship to death, and if we are really trying to avoid it or embrace it, which goes back to the two types of nihilism we've talked about, the two flavors, if you will, and how one of them drags you into this deep pit where you're kind of a boring person and a well, never even. get out of it. You'll Yes, even a well. There's not going to be a lassie <laughs> to drag you out of it, and you will never find your cat. Like, it's... <laughs> It's the kind of nihilism that's at its core completely unproductive. And then if you take it as, well, fuck it, you can't take it with you. Which is what I think the nihilism of the three roomies is in this movie. It's 
something completely different and something that is, I think, at the end of the day, very hopeful in a way that I found very compelling and funny and comforting. I think what it was about the movie is maybe not even nihilism, but watching a group of people create their own meaning for their existence and how significant to them something like a party in a community center could be Mm -hmm. or how how dramatic they could be about their ex-girlfriend or (laughs) or how much they really did love someone 60 years ago and then the youngest of the vampires finding out everything that you lose and the things that he complains about aren't like having to drink human blood it's like i can't eat chips Mm -hmm. i can't go to the bank or something like that can't watch daytime soaps i think it points to like he's not in fear for his immortal soul he's mad because he can't watch daytime television i think that kind of shows too like the scope at which human existence takes place and where where meaning really resides for most people most of the time. Most of the time, most of us, probably some of us less or more than others, aren't really grappling with, you know, with the meaning of life and, like, the the meaning of life capital letters kind of way. We're, like, watching Netflix, and we're <laughs> we're eating dinner, and we're trying to pay our taxes, and we're, do I clean the apartment tonight? Yeah. That's the rhythm at which life typically takes place. Then once in a while, I feel like, and that happens in the movie, you get punched in the face with the existential consequences of, of living. And when you're a vampire, those consequences are watching everyone around you die, it's having to fear for your immortal soul. It's being left behind by the times. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot. And they don't let on very often in the film how heavy that is. It comes out, like you said, kind of how it does in real life, in little moments, in the times that really do kind of sucker punch you. Like, for me, that kind of time is, like, that weird middle-of-the-night time where you know you should be asleep, but you're not. The world feels, like, so quiet, and you're like, God, am I the only person up? Am I the only person who thinks about this? Am I the only person (laughs) worried about this? A lot of the times that passes fairly, fairly quickly, but it is still something that you have to sort of wrestle with. This movie and the topic is sort of a perfect medium to talk about that in a way that isn't... It's kind of like how it treats... The antiquity of its protagonist it takes it to its most long-reaching but still logical conclusion where we hopefully will not have to watch everyone we ever know die <laughs> but you do still have people in your life you are gonna have to do that for and you are gonna have to see people leave and you're going to have relationships that don't work out you're gonna make choices you can't back out of that don't work out And you're gonna have to sort of wrestle with the idea that the person you have to live with longest is yourself. And you're, there's no getting rid of you. 
(laughs) You're stuck with you. And their reaction to that reality of being stuck with themselves and also kind of with each other is heartwarming, which is weird for people whose hearts don't beat. All right, everybody, that's going to wrap us up for this episode of Remedial Studies. I hope you enjoyed listening to us on this fine day. I hope it's a fine day wherever you are. If it isn't, I hope we made it better. Next time, we are going to be talking about this going to be the first episode in a read-along series that we're going to be doing. You are all going to be reading along with us. Listen to my serious voice. (laughs) But we're going to be reading... The Ankh-Morpork City Watch storyline of Terry Pratchett's Discworld books, which we've mentioned on this podcast before. The way Discworld works is you can read them in publication order, but there's different story arcs. If you're on Goodreads, they're all numbered for you. I believe they're called just City Watch on Goodreads. But the first book is called Guards, Guards, and that's what we're going to be talking about next time. It's a real quick read. Pick it up. It's hilarious. It'll make you think about government and alignments and dragons and human morality and it it's also like hilarious which is pretty much par for the course for terry pratchett if you would like to get in touch with us on any of our various and sundry social medias we are remedial studies podcast.tumblr.com we are at remedial studies on twitter we have um, an email account you can just send us a good old-fashioned letter to at remedialstudiespodcast at gmail.com. Quick housekeeping thing, we have also recently changed our hosting. We've changed over to uh, podient.co. I'm going to go ahead and probably in the next couple of days post um, our page for that on the Tumblr and the Twitter because that's going to be the place where it's going to have our whole back catalog of episodes. We might be doing some other blog posts on there. We have the capability for it anyway. It's just kind of a new thing we're trying out. And I'm excited about it. Podient seems like it's a pretty cool... I'm probably not saying that correctly, but they haven't corrected me yet. Is it is it Podient? It might be Podient because of podcast. Listeners, please retcon all previous pronunciations. <laughs> I always said it as Podient. You know this in your heart. Podient has a lot of really cool tools that I'm excited for us to explore that will hopefully lead to more direct interaction with you guys. Which, once this semester's over, is something I'll be able to be more actively involved with. Until next time, I think that is it for this episode. This should be coming out on April 17th, so that episode will be up on May 1st. We will, you will not see us. We will not see you. But you will hear us next time, robots.